Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you hit that subscribe button and I hope you're digging what we're doing here or knows I've been digging what I've been doing lately, including getting all these new five-star reviews for helping people do what I love the most. No, not talking about old wrestling, but that's second talking about helping families just like yours save tens of thousands of dollars at savewithconrad.com. Is what we're talking about. We would love to help you save some cash right now. If you're in a 30 year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, there's never been a better time to save money than right now. Just passed my 19 year anniversary in the mortgage business. And I've never been able to offer rates as low as I can right now. I've also never been licensed in as many states. If you can hear my voice, there's a good chance I'm licensed in your state. And it's free to find out how much money you can save right now at savewithconrad.com. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. But don't take my word for it. Just ask Joseph in Alexandria, Virginia. He gave us a five-star review and said, fantastic service, great attention to detail, simple and easy process. How about over in Perryton, Texas, Jarrell says, Conrad, David, and Jennifer were complete professionals, and I had recommended them already to a couple. I couldn't put them over more if I tried. Thank you again for helping us out in a major way. I won't forget it. What about up in Gallatin, Texas? William gave us a five-star, and he says, Jimmy did a fine job keeping me informed and working through a couple of unique things involving our original loan. Would be sure to recommend this fine team to anyone. How about Christina moving down from New York city? Yep. She wrote as first time home buyers coming from out of state. Naturally, this is a very stressful process, but save with Conrad was a blessing. The entire team is helpful, courteous, and just made the entire experience so much easier and more pleasant than it could have been. I can't thank save with Conrad enough. Thank you for everything you've done for my family. The reviews keep on coming guys. Five star reviews one after another. You're going to save a boatload of cash. If you're in a 30 year loan. We're going to show you how to pay your house off faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Maybe you've been throwing your money away on rent. You don't need a huge down payment or perfect credit to buy a house. We can help you make it happen right now. And maybe best of all, if you've got credit card debt, I can save you five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention interest rates in the twos? Can't believe that's real, but just last week we locked a bunch of new loans with interest rates in the twos. My only advice to you is hurry. Barry Habib is the foremost expert on interest rates. You've probably seen him on every cable news service. Just last week, he advised that we're on borrowed time with these rates. The time to act is now. Get ahead of this. You're going to be kicking yourself. You missed this once in a lifetime opportunity. Keep more of your own money. Go to savewithconrad.com right now before it's too late. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com. And you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step. Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100 day, 100% money back guarantee and free shipping. 
Interest-free financing is available online too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com, fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm, I'm fine, Conrad. I'm sitting here. I've got my down jacket on. I've got my, my heavy boots on, a big wool hat pulled down over my head because we're talking about the AWA. We're going back to my roots, back to the beginning. And, of course, this time of year in Minnesota, it's damn cold out. So I'm all prepped. I'm ready to go. I got my Java. I'm, I'm fired up, man. I'm looking forward to this. I'm, I'm sad that the weather's changing on us. I, uh, I took a peek at this week's forecast and by Friday, it'll be 41 in Alabama. It was like 90 last week. This is not what I was hoping for. Yeah, I know it's been, uh, it's, it's been kind of interesting here. We've had, we'll go from like 85 degrees and then the next day it's down to 40 and then it's up to 75 and then it's down to 45 and it's up and down, but I think it's finally settling in. I got up this morning and it was about 38 degrees out where I live. So start to feel like start to feel like winter's coming. Well, we're, uh, we're ready for what's coming today or we hope we are. Listen, <laughs> I, I, I mapped out our entire schedule. I don't know, like the second week of, of quarantine when everybody was sort of sheltering in place, I went a little crazy and thought, you know, I got to just fill this extra time somehow. So I mapped out all of our topics for all five shows all year long. And when I came to September 28th, I thought, you know, this might be fun and I can't believe it, but it's finally here. The AWA team challenge series 89. Little did I know when I wrote this down that the Thunderdome would exist and the world had changed to the point where something that was maybe once upon a time looked at as a crackpot goofy idea may have accidentally be a, been ahead of its time. It, it, it foreshadowed the future. Isn't that interesting when you look back at things like this and yeah. like you and so many other people, you know, you look, I've looked back at that team challenge series and of course, you know, with the narrative that's, you know, propagated out there in social media and, and, and so forth, everybody, well, a lot of people, I guess, thought that the team challenge series was somehow my idea. Um, it wasn't, let's make that abundantly clear at the head of the show. Not by the way, not because it's an embarrassment or anything like that. It's just my role in the AWA at that point was, um, I, I was nowhere near creative. I was nowhere even in close proximity to the ability to, to suggest an idea, but nonetheless, you know, it, the narratives out there and, and now, you know, because we're doing the show and we kind of, we're kind of looking back at the, the team challenge series that Vern Gagne pr produced for AWA and in light of COVID and all of the changes, uh, that, television has undergone in the last six months it it was it was it, it's the team challenge series kind of foreshadowed what we're seeing today although for different reasons obviously there wasn't a pandemic back in 1989 well there, there kind of was with regard to Vern Gagne when it came to money 
um, he was out of it. And because he was out of money and still had to produce a television show, they had to find a way to do it. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but again, we're, we're looking at a television production from 1989, right? Not 1999, not 2009, not 2019. We're looking at something that happened a long time ago. And, and the technology causations, if you will, but essentially an attempt to do the very same thing. How do we produce a show with no audience? You know, when I, when I first started looking at this, this weekend, I started to think about the parallels from the AWA and, and, and what's going on now with WWE. And you start to think about the ways that some of this is familiar and what they have in common and maybe what's not quite the same. But what I come back to is what's that old cliche? Um, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Like there was a need for this in 89. Now there's a need for it in 2020, two different situations, but the need is the same. And well, let's just jump into it. The year is 89. If you, as you heard for Eric sort of allude to the American wrestling association, who we know is the AWA, well, their business is on the ropes and by the way, they're not alone in that fact. All the other territories have, have gone belly up as well, or nearly all of them. Don Owen's still limping along, I think, and things aren't the same in Florida. That's for sure. Of course, the Crockett's have sold to Ted Turner. Bill Watts had sold to the Crockett's. The territories are just drying up. They're on the vine. And desperation, I guess, can bring out the best sometimes and Maybe that's not always the case, but we're trying something new here in the AWA on October 1st, 1989. We're going to begin the AWA team challenge series. It really is one of the company's last big angles, and it's going to give a lot to talk about here. We should give you a little bit of context over in the WWE WrestleMania five had just set every record possible for Hulk Hogan and the macho man on top. The build a survivor series was taking place and on house shows. Hogan still defending against Randy Savage over on the other channel. WCW is wrapping up a tremendous feud with Ric Flair and Ricky steamboat. And we've transitioned right into Ric Flair and Terry funk along the way. They're going to be at the inaugural Halloween havoc later this month. And we're going to have flair and sting on one side, Terry funk and great mood on the other. So while critically that may be, you know, looked upon very favorably fans weren't exactly turning out in groves for WCW either. Um, before we jump into 1989, you and I talked about this when we first saw it and had a glimpse of what it might be. But now that we're several weeks in, what do you think of the new Thunderdome setup that they're doing on WWE programming these days? I think it's amazing what. WWE has achieved with regard to the Thunderdome. I mean, talking, you know, the old saying, you know, making chicken salad out of chicken shit. Well, yeah. not even close here. I mean, what WWE has been able to accomplish is nothing short from, from a production point of view is nothing short of amazing in my opinion. And in a way I'm not surprised, you know, uh, 
Kevin Dunn, and again, there's a you know a lot of narrative out there about Kevin Dunn, and people have their opinions about Kevin Dunn. I, I think Kevin is. I don't like to throw the word genius around out there, but I don't know anybody more talented when it comes to production, live production, than than Kevin Dunn and his team. That's the other thing. You know, it's easy, I think, for all of us. And, you know, I, I almost did it just now. You know, Kevin Dunn, he's the guy. And he is. He is the guy. But I think what I respect so much about Kevin is not just his particular talent with regard to what we see on television, but his ability to build an amazing team. Kevin Dunn has one of the most impressive team of people working in post-production and in live production of any, I just can't think of anybody that's as good as WWE when it comes to live production. They, they're on the cutting edge. They're on the cutting edge of the cutting edge. And I, I actually sent a text to a couple of people when I first saw the Thunderdome, just putting it over and how amazed I was. You know, the NBA has done something similar, and they actually did it first, but not to the extent that the WWE has. So I'm, I'm, I could not be possibly more impressed with what WWE has done with the Thunderdome. It's by no means perfect. It's that type of a presentation and production is never going to replace the energy that a, a, the tangible energy that a live crowd brings to a production like wrestling. It's just impossible, but there's no way you can get any closer to it than what WWE has done. So nothing but just massive respect for WWE and Kevin Dunn, and more importantly, his entire team. Too many of them to mention here. Some of them I've known for a long time. Um, just amazed. There's a lot of folks who uh, heard you just heap a bunch of praise on WWE there, and they're going to be critical of that for whatever reason. But I do see a lot of, I don't know, um, disenchanted fans who think, Man, this sucks. I just don't like it. It's not the same without human interaction. I miss the crowd. Well, it's true, but what are you going to do? Right. What's the alternative? <laughs> right. And and those same people would be blistering social media if, of course, WWE doesn't have the option of saying, okay, well, screw it. We're just going to go ahead and do it anyway. They can't do that. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And that's the nature, I guess, of being out there, you know, in a high profile position in the public. And, and producing, you know, entertainment is there's always going to be, you know, jag offs that are out there criticizing you. For, no matter what you do, you're going to get criticized for it. Uh, for those of you who are disenchanted, you know, just be patient, man. Be grateful for what you are getting, whether it's from WWE or AEW. You're getting live action, you know, wrestling out there. And, you know, for, for, for people to be critical of it and say it's just not the same, well, Guess what? Fuck not going to a restaurant isn't the same either. What are you going to do? Complain about the restaurant owner not allowing 100% capacity? You know, well, you don't have a choice. You're doing the best you can with what you've got. Not unlike Vern Gagne and the AWA was doing in, you know, in 1989. They were doing the best they had with the resources available to them. Look at the amount of money that W, and I don't know what the dollar figure is. I'm going to be very interested in finding out. Um, but look at the amount of money 
that WWE is investing into trying, attempting to do the best they can in producing the best product that they can in the Thunderdome. I don't know how you can be critical of that unless you're just a piece of shit that lives to criticize everything and anything. Is so there? There's, I'm going to get some heat for that. Guess what? I don't care. Love this version of you. Okay. We've got to run another timeout right now. And I want to remind you something that we've already been talking about here on the show. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. Searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls until now. Thanks to the zebra.com. The zebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place you can compare quotes side by side from over a hundred different providers and choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus they never sell your information to the spammers. So you won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple, fast form and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the Zebra Kayak for Auto Insurance. The best part is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year using the Zebra.com. With states reopening and people back on the road, the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest possible price. But how much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks spelled T H E Z E B R A.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank the zebra.com for sponsoring today's podcast. There's a rumor and innuendo out there that they might be looking at an outdoor venue, uh, much like AW has secured an eight, an outdoor venue at Daly's place. Of course, that one's easy. It's attached to the Jaguar stadium that they own. So no brainer, but supposedly some local sources down there in Florida are saying that maybe the company has been scouting some outdoor venues down there and that might allow them to have at least a few fans. Do you think overall the Thunderdome will be something that they embrace and bring back every now and again? Or do you think the option of having some live fans in an outdoor venue is just that much superior? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a prediction. Um, Two things before I do this time of year in Florida is a great time of year to do things outdoors. Yep. Two months ago, three months ago, when COVID first hit the middle of the summer, man, that's a tough time of year to try to do anything outside in Florida because the weather patterns, you know, because of the summer, I won't get into meteorology here on 83 weeks, but having been a former pilot and having spent some time in Florida, Man, summertime is the worst time because you're going to get heavy storms on a pretty regular basis almost every night in the summertime. It's just part of things. You know, usually by about four or five o'clock, you know, all that heat builds up during the day and things start cooling off. The storm, you know, the, the clouds start rolling in and boom, you get a you get a storm. Now it may only last for an hour, it may last for two hours, it may last for 15 minutes, but it's going to happen almost every night in some part of Florida. And that makes you know, live production, very, very challenging in the summer. Now, this time of year, when the weather patterns start to shift, Florida gets pretty damn nice 
here in about another couple of weeks, usually by the middle of October, you're, you're out of that thunderstorm season. You're out of the hurricane season. I think it ends sometimes sometime in November. That's when things get consistently pretty nice in Florida and you mitigate your risks or, or, or the risk really um, diminish substantially for live event production outside. So I don't think they could have tried reasonably to find a suitable outdoor arena that would have allowed them to be able to stay on any kind of a schedule to, to produce their shows. <clears throat> my other prediction is, and I hope I'm wrong, by the way, this is just my gut. There's no experience that, that leads me to this. There's just nothing other than my instinct is that shooting outdoors, unless now it's, we're talking about Florida in Florida, you know, governor DeSantis is, is really, he, he just opened up restaurants to full capacity last week. So they're really starting to open up Florida. Pray to God that's going to, you know, not cause any issues and we're not going to see any massive spikes. If, if WWE is producing outdoors and is able to put enough people enough fans in, into whatever venue they're looking at, if they are, um, so that you feel that energy, then I think it's a great thing, a good thing, not a great thing, a good thing, a good alternative, a reasonable alternative to what we were doing pre COVID. My fear is that if for whatever reason they have to really, you know, social distance and keep everybody spread apart and have everybody wearing masks and all the other things that, you know, could likely happen. Um, I guess it's a 50, 50 shot. I think the outdoor venue may provide less energy than the Thunderdome. Hmm. When I watch wrestling, when I see action in the Thunderdome, and I, and I don't sit and watch a whole show, I'm fully full disclosure here, but when I have dropped in, and I have more out of curiosity than you know anything else, when I have, and I'll watch it for 15 minutes or half an hour, and I'll do whatever else I'm doing, and I'll come back and I'll watch it for another 15 minutes or half an hour. I kind of drift in and out on, usually on Raw because Friday nights I'm usually doing something else. But when I have dropped in on SmackDown inside the Thunderdome, I same thing, you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Um, it feels, I almost forget, I almost forget that this is an accommodation. This is a solution to a problem. Right. In other words, the energy is almost there enough for me to forget why I'm looking at what I'm looking at, which is a good thing. You know, I'm kind of staggering around a response here. It's early in the morning. I'm only on my third cup of coffee. And, you know, you know me well enough to know I'm only, that's about an eighth of a tank of gas for me. But when I'm watching SmackDown, I can forget for just a moment that I'm watching a solution to a problem it, because the energy is just that good. And I, I just don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm concerned. I've got no dog in this hunt. So, it's not going to affect my life one way or the other, but there's a lot of people in WWE I care a lot about. Right. And, and I'm hoping it works out. But my fear is that you're going to see an outdoor venue because of the situation we're in. You're going to see people spread all over the place. And it's not going – unless they change the way they shoot. Now, that's the other thing. Unless they, they, they change the way they shoot the action and cover the action, my fear <clears throat> is that it's going to feel less than what we see on SmackDown 
at Thunderdome. Well, it'd be interesting to see if those rumors are true. And if they do go outdoors, I know fans are itching to do something again, but, uh, I'm with you. I just think they've, uh, they've got a cool look here and I think they've improved it. You know, certainly there were some glitches and some things they needed to work out, but I think as it continues to evolve, it could get better and better. So we'll see. Let's talk about 1989 though. Uh, we mentioned business is not exactly booming. The world championship is on Larry Zabisco who had won the title by eliminating Tom Zink in a battle Royal earlier the year, uh, February 7th, 1989. And this is after the belt had been stripped off of Jerry, the King Lawler on January 20th, after uh, Lawler and Jarrett's continental wrestling association had split with the AWA. And as a result, I think Lawler wound up keeping the physical belt and what he said was retaliation for not getting his payoff from super clash three. And, uh, we haven't spent much time talking about that, but that was quite the, the concept super clash briefly explain what super clash was for some of our younger listeners who may not be familiar. Well, as you pointed out in the beginning of this, you know, podcast, a lot of the territories, whether it's Don Owen, Jerry Jarrett, um, everybody, Von Eriks, Florida championship wrestling, everybody was, well, Let's call it what it was. Vince McMahon, when he decided to to go national and take advantage of of cable television and and, and get out of the strictly syndication business, which the territories had been in at that you know prior to that, basically gutted all of the major promotions of all of their top talent. Uh, you know, as as I was accused of so many times before, and this isn't about me, but you, you know, the narrative, right? All WCW did was steal WWF talent. Well, that's number one. It's bullshit. It it's childish, dirt sheet bullshit. But Vince did that. <laughs> you know, look at the talent that he took out of the AWA, starting with Hulk Hogan, Kurt Hennig, you know, Gene Okerlund, Bobby Heenan. You know, and, and there were others, less significant, obviously, but there were many others. And Vince did the same thing to a lot of other territories. And those territories were struggling. They were drying up. They were going out of business. Um, and they had, you know, one last ditch effort to try to do something to sustain themselves. Um, they all, and I think it was Vern's idea. I don't know. I wasn't in the meetings, but. I'm pretty sure it was Vern's idea to try to cobble together, you know, a network, if you will, of these independent, or excuse me, territory promoters like Don Owens and Bob Geigel and, and others, um, and put together this one big pay-per-view that featured all of the top talent from all these independent promotions. Again, from a conceptual point of view, brilliant idea. I mean, it really was. If you could imagine, you know, again, pre-COVID and maybe even a year and a half ago when the independent territories were really starting to explode. And there was a lot of indie shows all over the East Coast, on the West Coast, in the Southeast. And some of them, some of those independent promoters were emerging and, and doing really, really well. So if you can imagine just a year and a half or two years ago at the what I would consider maybe, maybe, I don't know, the peak of independent wrestling in the United States and in Europe, by the way, uh, especially in the UK, imagine if you could have, you know, kind of cherry picked the top promoters around the world, right. if you wanted to include the UK promoters and put together one big pay-per-view of some of the top talent that 
normally wrestled in those independent territories. I think you would have had a tremendous amount of interest in that. Well, that's what Vern did. And, 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 the, and the other promoters that worked with him, including Jerry Jarrett, um, their idea was, okay, let's, we'll bring all of our talent and we'll come together and we'll have this big super clash three and we'll have the top talent from around the world competing on this pay-per-view. Conceptually, it was a great idea. The execution of it, mm, not so much. But the, the very idea that you could take these you know, independent wrestling promoters like Vern Gagne, like Jerry Jarrett, like Donovan, like all the other people that you know participated in it, and get them to agree to anything was like herding rabid squirrels. It was a mess. It was really interesting because they all had history. You know, in the case of, I think, Bob Geigel, for example, the history between Bob and, and Vern were pretty good. was pretty good. But Jerry Jarrett and Vern Gagne, man, eh, not so much. It was, it was hot and cold. They used each other whenever it was beneficial to them. They would use each other. But there was no love lost between them at all. So the idea of, you know, all the, these different promoters coming together and meet. I remember I went to one of the – one of the meetings, I was producing something or, or I was assisting producing something. I was a basically I was a gaffer. You know, I was hauling sets around and, you know, hauling cameras out of vans and setting them up and things like that. So I had a really a very low level position, but I was in the proximity, you know, when these meetings would take place. And it was like the mafia bosses coming together. You know, you could you could the, the tension in the air was palpable. You could. You could gr- almost grab a hold of it and put it in your pocket, cut it with a knife, whatever you want to use. The the tension was really obvious there. And they'd all huddle up in a room and they were there for hours and hours. And I'm assuming they were talking about finishes and talents and where they go from here and how they were going to split up the money and all, all the things that you would have to kind of go through to put on an event like that. But it was pretty interesting to be a fly on the wall. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step. Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently He's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100 day, 100% money back guarantee and free shipping. Interest free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning gifts that say, I love you every single day. Backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. So Super Clash is not this, uh, I don't know, cure-all. It's not the magic bullet. So Zabisco winds up defending the belt that year against Greg Gagne, Sergeant Slaughter, Baron Von Roski, and even David Sammartino. Attendance, uh, to use a wrestling term was the drizzling shits, uh, <laughs> a show on February 2nd in Winnipeg with almost every star in the company there drew a reported attendance of 500 
A few days later, they run the St. Paul Civic Center, in which Zabisco would win the AWA title. This is a 16,000 seat arena, and we have 750 fans in attendance. Wow. So the result of all this is well, desperate times call for desperate measures, and here we are the AWA Team Challenge Series. The roster is being split into three teams Team Baron, which is Baron Von Rasky's team, the Blitzers. Team Zabisco, which we're calling Larry Zabisco's Legends, and Team Slaughter, which is called Sergeant Slaughter Snipers. And each team is going to compete for points, which would be won in various and often gimmick-heavy matches. And the three teams are vying for a shot at a $1 million prize. Of course, this is that kayfabe million dollars. There's some famous stories over the years, Eric, of guys winning like a gimmick battle royal of sorts and they're supposed to win this big payday. And then they go try to cash the big check, which is just hilarious only in wrestling. Um, but this concept of the different teams and this feels almost American gladiators like, and I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but I like the concept of teams, but this whole point system and all of that, it does feel like they're trying something totally new, not just with the technology but with this sort of structure of teams and points. You're right. And as you're laying that out, you know, for our listeners and and I'm, you know, I'm flashing back to the time I have to admire the attempt, the execution. And it just didn't resonate. You know, it, it didn't, it wasn't successful. Oftentimes when you try something brand new, the odds of it being successful right out of the shoot are slim to almost none. You know, failure is much more common when you're trying to break new ground and, 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 you know, crush the paradigm and do something that people aren't used to seeing or, or participating in, you know, the, the odds of it being successful coming out of the gate were next to nothing. Um, but they, they attempted it. And as you're laying that out and I'm listening to it, I, I can't help but admire the attempt. Yeah, it didn't work, but I love the attempt. Again, you, you, you talk about context is king. You have to go back to 1989. You have to look at each one of these, you know, individual territories who were collapsing. Vern was losing money hand over fist, and I, I may have talked about this in the past, but I want to put this. I want to frame this properly. Vern Gagne was one of the most successful independent promoters in the country for for a long time. Throughout the 70s and in in the in the 80s, early 80s, before Vince McMahon kind of decided to go national and all of the talent ended up in WWF, Vern was the place where everybody wanted to work. They made more money. He was a monthly territory, not a weekly territory, which made life easier for a lot of people uh, who were part of it. Um, it it was the holy grail. Other than the WWWWWWF, <laughs> it, it, whatever the fuck it was, it you know Vern was where everybody wanted to work. Um, but by 1989, that was gone. Vern w- had burned through. You know, AWA had no cash reserves. AWA was the only way AWA existed from about 1986 on was by virtue of Burns' personal checkbook. And 
because there was really no money coming in. There was no revenue coming in. Syndication at the time, there were two shows in AWA. One was on ESPN Monday through Friday, you know, three o'clock central, whatever that was on East Coast, five o'clock, you know, Eastern time, which by the way, yours truly hosted. And then there was the syndicated show, which was, you know, different matches, packaged different, you know, different, it was packaged differently, different formats and all that. One hour show that it was syndicated throughout the Midwest primarily, but also in Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, which is the Midwest, but very limited syndication. Neither of those television properties, the syndicated show nor ESPN resulted in any licensing, any cash. Vern was syndicating his show, meaning he would barter, he would send it out to these individual stations across the country in exchange for commercial time, not for dollars. So if there was 12 minutes of commercial time, which I think is what it was back in that day, if there were 12 minutes of commercial time available within the hour, Vern would get six and the local television show that carried his, his programming would get six. But there was no cash exchange, so which means there was no revenue. You know, look at the WWE now, half a billion dollars a year in revenue, in television licensing revenue, meaning the WWE is getting paid to produce a show and then put it on a network. Vern didn't have that. Vern was operating on a barter system, which was very dated. That's the way wrestling had always been done up until probably 93, 94, and things started changing. But there was no money coming in. There was no pay-per-view business. There was no licensing and merchandising. There was nothing. Vern was writing a check out of his own personal account every single week to not only keep the offices, and the AWA offices, by the way, were pretty decent offices at the time. Um, uh, all of the talent, all of the talent that would have to fly in every two weeks to cut the market you know, promos or you know, edit market promos for the syndicated show as well as for ESPN, all of those plane tickets, all of the, you know, the, the talent fees, everything was coming out of Vern's personal checkbook. On top of that, and this is what really crushed Vern in the AWA, but this was all going on right now as we're talking about October 1st, 1989, the state of Minnesota had exercised – uh, eminent domain, meaning the state of Minnesota decided, eh, Vern Gagne's got this beautiful piece of property. He's got whatever it was, 30, 40, 50, 100 acres. I don't even know what it was. It was a lot. Beautiful home. He had a giant horse barn. His daughter, uh, Donna, Donna Gagne, loved horses. So, of course, there was this big, beautiful, you know, barn and horse facility on the property. The property was on one of the most prestigious lakes in, in the Minneapolis area, Lake Minnetonka, beautiful scenic area. And the state of Minnesota said, mm, yeah, we kind of want that. We, we like Vernus place and we like to turn it into a park. So we're going to take it. Just, Exercise eminent. It was all political. Of course, they wanted it. Who wouldn't want it? Vern spent his lifetime building up, you know, uh, the ability to build his what the, the home he wanted to retire and eventually, you know, live out the rest of his life in. That's what drove him to build such a beautiful home in such a beautiful area. Until the state of Minnesota came along and said, "Nah, we'll take that," and they did. And Vern fought it. Vern was stubborn as hell. He's one of the most, other than Vince McMahon, so two things I think, you know, Vern Gagne and Vince McMahon have in common, had in common, is both just as stubborn as any 
people I've ever met in my life. And Vern, you know, Vern was a fighter too. I mean, legitimate. He, Vern, Vern liked to fight, whether it was in business, you know, as he was younger, you know, and, and he was an amazing amateur wrestler. Um, he was a tough dude. And, and even into his, you know, he, I think Vern hired me when he was like 63 or 64 years old. And even some of the boys who would talk tough shit when Vern wasn't around kind of sucked it all up. And I've seen Vern go nose to nose with some of the top talent, you know, supposedly badasses. And he didn't want to mess with Vern because he could still go even at 63 or 64 years old. He had the ability to embarrass people. So he was a tough guy and he didn't want to take any shit. And he fought the state of Minnesota. He fought the law and the law won. He fought eminent domain. All of the money that he had uh, 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 built up and accrued over the years of being one of the most successful promoters in the country, was he was burning through that cash like crazy. Not only trying to keep the AWA alive because he was too stubborn to realize that it was either change or die. He was too stubborn to realize and recognize where Vince McMahon and the WWF were going way back when, before I started the AWA, Vince McMahon came to Minneapolis and met with Vern and Greg and offered to buy them out. And I'm guessing, I don't know the truth because, you know, I only heard one side of the story, which was from, you know, Vern and Greg, but I'm guessing Vince probably offered him a pretty penny because, you know, Vince has never been shy about spending money right. when it was the right, when it was the right thing to do. And because again, Vern was so freaking stubborn and Greg had no backbone. He was going to do whatever Vern wanted to do. And I understand that. I shouldn't be critical of that. I mean, it was his father. It was Vern's promotion, but they, you know, they basically told Vince to go pound salt or Vince told them to pound salt because Vern and Greg wanted to negotiate with Vince. And I think as I've heard and read subsequently, Vince's words as he was getting out of the car and about ready to get out of the plane and head back to Stanford was, I don't negotiate. He laid a, he laid a deal on the table. It was probably a deal that Vern, or excuse me, Greg now looking back, especially, you know, as he's sitting here looking at what's happened to his life is wishing his dad would have taken that deal, but, um, he refused it. So not only was Vern struggling to keep the AWA alive because there was no money coming in and it was all going out. Now he's in the legal battle of his lifetime, trying to take on the state of Minnesota and the state government of Minnesota in an eminent domain issue. And, and Conrad, you know, far more about real estate than I do, but, Fighting the state in an eminent domain issue, you good will luck lose. with that. Yeah, you might as well just set fire to whatever it is you own, and whatever it is you have in the bank. Just build a big old bonfire, grab some marshmallows, and call it a day because you're gonna lose it. And Vern did, and this was his last, in my opinion, his last dying breath as a business to try to keep AWA alive. And what sucks is, you know, not only is he losing his personal wealth through the, the home situation and eminent domain and the state and all that, but he's losing the business as well, not just as far as the revenue, but the talent. And I think that's one of the reasons these guys were picked as maybe the captains, you know, Baron is, is a staple there and he had done everything and been everywhere, but he was pretty well established in the area. Uh, Sarge had had a falling out with Vince McMahon because he wanted to do the GI Joe thing. And of course, 
Vince wanted no part of that. So as a result, he's got GI Joe all over his gear here. They're even referring to him as GI Joe himself. So Vern is very willing to sort of allow that co-branding to exist. So Sarge isn't going anywhere. And it wasn't co-branding. It was just a blatant <laughs> trademark infringement and ripoff. But yeah, he was willing to do it because yeah, look, wrestling wasn't taken seriously back right. in the day from, from a, from a business point of view. I don't think anybody at Mattel or whoever Hasbro, whoever owned the GI Joe, uh, trademark. I don't think they looked at, I don't, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Sergeant Slaughter back in the AWA days, I doubt that it even showed up on any attorney's radar. Oh no. Just, just so you know, Eric, I don't know that you're in the loop on this, but he actually had a deal with GI Joe and Vince wouldn't allow it. So, oh, okay. so he had to pick. So it was a way of saying, Hey, I'm getting this check for nothing for doing these GI Joe pro. Like I had a GI Joe, a Sergeant Slaughter GI Joe as a kid. And so he's actually got the logo on his jacket. So there Vern is at least willing to accept, you know, this sort of cross promotion, if you will. Uh, of course, Vince wants to own everything and, and he wouldn't have, uh, well, there would have been a different split for Sarge. How's that? We'll say that. I've always thought it was so cool when I would go to one of my friend's houses or maybe uh, one of my friend's grandparents' houses. They had one of those old fancy paintings of their family over the fireplace. I just thought that was so classy. So when I heard that at paintyourlife.com, you could have an original painting by a world-class artist done by hand, all from a photo, I thought, man, what a great idea. It must be so expensive. But the reality is that's just not true. I'm proud to say I finally got one of those hanging in my dining room and you can get a professional hand painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. And if you really want to give a truly meaningful gift, you've just got to try paintyourlife.com. You'll choose from a team of world-class artists and create with them and work with them until every detail is perfect user-friendly platforms that help you make a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes that's too good to be true but that's what you're going to find at paintyourlife.com it's quick and easy in fact you can get a hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks and here's how it works you send any picture maybe one of your kids or yourself or your family or a special place or a special pet you can even combine photos into one painting this makes an incredible birthday gift an unbeatable anniversary gift and a truly memorable wedding gift. It's the perfect gift for pretty much any occasion. And why is that? Well, because it's meaningful, it's personal, and it will be cherished forever. Eventually, everybody's gonna forget who gave them that tie, or that blender, or that gift card. But nobody's gonna forget a hand-drawn painting from a world-class artist. Are you kidding? They're gonna keep that forever. And this has been my experience when I gave this to my mom and dad, when I gave this to my in-laws, when I, when I have one in my own dining room, I mean, people will be breezing past and they'll see it and they'll stop and look, is that a photo? Oh my gosh, this is a painting. And they ask, where'd you get it? And I can't wait to tell them at paintyourlife.com. And by the way, I should mention at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word ERIC to 64000. That's E-R-I-C to 64000. Text ERIC to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Larry Zabisco is the last member here. And I'm sure some people are like, well, what 
the fuck? Why Larry's a Bisco? In real life, Larry's not going anywhere because he's Vern Gagne's son-in-law. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of our listeners maybe knew that, but you got to have somebody captain these teams that's bankable that you, that you perceive has name value. That's recognizable to your audience and please, oh, please, oh, please. They're not going anywhere. And you know, some of the other guys on each team, if they want to jump ship, whatever, we've still got the captains, but we've got some folks that we know are going to be here. And this concept of these teams allows them to continue storylines and feuds. Even if people do leave, because they know the captains aren't going anywhere. And we've got to adapt to all these new challenges of, uh, it's a new era and we're competing on TV and we're having to fight for TV time. And we're also trying to present, um, I don't know, a hot wrestling show. And how do you do that historically? Well, with live fans, but as you heard, they're running 16,000 seat arenas and there's 700 folks showing up. And, and, you know, these days we're what, 10 months into 2020 now, and we're sort of used to wrestling without crowds, but this was a, what felt like at the time, a harebrained idea, uh, maybe ahead of its time now. And in, in hindsight, when you first hear, well, here's what we're going to do, Eric, we're going to do this new thing called chroma key, which we sort of refer to as green screen. I, I think for this particular show, and, and you were a part of these. It was probably a blue screen. I'm colorblind, but at one point I saw a dude in a green shirt and I thought, well, that wouldn't show up at all. If it was a real green screen. What'd you think about this technology aspect of this concept of, Hey, if we can't get the fans there, we'll just, before this was a thing, superimpose them there. I was fascinated by it. There, there was, again, I, I never talk about Mike Shields enough. Uh, I never give Mike enough credit and, and, and I guess for no other reason, and we don't often talk about AWA in any real detail other than, you know, casually referencing it from time to time. <clears throat> Mike was the guy that actually hired me. You know, Vern Gagne obviously had to approve it, but it was Mike who went to bat for me. It was Mike Shields who I was working with closely when I, you know, had that game Ninja Star Wars and was working to, you know, get my commercial edited into the, you know, I had to produce the commercial myself on my own funds. That was the, that was part of the deal. But I, and I worked so closely with Mike Shields was really the, the guy that spearheaded all that for me. And it was because of my relationship with Mike that Mike said, wow, this guy might actually work really well for us in terms of selling our syndicated product. So it was that relationship that was really the catalyst for me ended up you know, being hired for, with the AWA. And Mike was kind of a jack of all trades. Mike had worked for Jerry Jarrett for a long time uh, in post-production. I'm not uh, c- completely sure of all the things that Mike did for Jerry. Um, you know, it was a long time ago, 30 some odd years ago. So I don't remember all the details. I'm sure I knew at one point, but that's where Mike Shields came from. He came from the Jerry, you know, from the, the Memphis territory and, and working for Jerry. And Mike was a really, really smart guy. He was a very low pro- profile guy, but he was very smart. And I knew nothing about television. I had had no idea how television was produced or edited or distributed. It was, everything was fascinating to me. I think I described it in my book several years ago, now 12 years ago, whatever it was, that when I first walked into a production truck, 
I think the first time I ever stepped into a, a production truck was in Las Vegas when Vern was producing shows at the old Showboat Arena. Um, I walked into this truck, and it was like an eight-year-old kid who was a fan of Star Trek walking into the control center of the Starship Enterprise. I mean, I was overwhelmed with what I saw. It was fascinating to me. And then as Mike would slowly kind of educate me, you know, expose me to television production, I slowly began to get involved with post-production and little things at first, just to me, I, this is how, <laughs> this is how naive I was and excited, you know, back when I was in my early thirties, when I first started, you know, but this time, by the way, October 1st, 1989, I think I had been in AWA for a year and a couple months by that point. And most of that time, I was nowhere near talent or creative. I was ne never near creative, but I was, it didn't have a lot of proximity to talent and the live event side of the business. I was basically a salesman. Right. Selling, instead of selling meat, I was selling a television show. Sales is sales as far as I was concerned, but that was predominantly what I was exposed to. So as Mike Shields slowly began to expose me to the very basics of television production, I was like a sponge. And as a result of that, I was learning so much and being exposed to so much through Mike Shields that I kind of put Mike up on a pedestal. If Mike said, yeah, this is what we're going to try and this is how it's going to work. I was fascinated with all of it. Greens, what's a chroma key? What is that? And then Mike would explain it to me and he would show me how it worked. And, and, you know, back then I was excited to do one of the, if you hired if, Conrad, if you were producing a television show and you had to edit your tapes, copy your tapes and send them out the door to different television stations around the country, um, you would have to dub the, so you'd have a, a master, a one inch or a three quarter inch master tape. That's what came out of the truck, right? big, and it was a big, you know, we called them cans at the time. They were plastic, but these big reels of either one inch tape, which was already outdated by the late eighties, but Vern was still using it. And a three quarter inch tape, which was like a huge, you know, video cassette, like massive. And you'd, you'd shoot it on location and then you'd bring it back to your post-production facility and then you'd edit it appropriately. And then you'd also insert your commercials and, you know, enhance your audio and do all the things you need to do to make it suitable for television. Once you edited it on your either one inch format or your three quarter inch format, then you would have to dub it. And dubbing is just copying, which probably everybody that's listening to this already knows. But my, I was so excited to be able to learn how to copy tapes on the one inch machines, <laughs> you literally had to thread them with your finger through all the different components of a, uh, of the machine that they used to copy tapes. And I was so excited just to learn how that process is done. Because for me, television, I grew up with television You know, I was born in 1955. By the time I was, you know, six years old, seven years old, you know, I spent a lot of time in front of the television and back in the early sixties, television was a real family affair. You know, when dad came home from work at the end of the day after dinner, you know, everybody gathered around to, you know, to watch TV together. 
There were no, you know, there was no social media. There was no iPhones. There was no anything. You know, once the sun went down and you're at home, you know, the family would get together and watch whatever the family watched. So television was still kind of new, you know, in my neighborhood in, in Detroit, only maybe two or three people in my neighborhood had a color TV. Wow. Everything else was black and white. You know, the, one of the first, you know, friends of mine in my neighborhood whose family got a color TV, it was like, whoa, this is crazy. I mean, we would all go over to his house on the weekends to watch cartoons and to watch television because color television was, you know, for my neighborhood, brand new. And because of that, my fascination with the process of producing television um, was was a strong component as, into why I was so excited to learn how to begin to understand how it all came together. And I, I use this analogy all the time. It's like, you know, I, I'm sure you have a microwave in your house. I mean, I've been to your house several yeah. times and I'm, I didn't take note, but I'm guessing you, like almost everybody else in the United States, has a microwave oven. I bet you if you took a survey out of all, you know, if you pick 100 people that have microwave ovens, have them come over to your house and say, okay, is there anybody here that can explain how a microwave works? <laughs> Out of a hundred people, I doubt anybody would raise their hand. Right. Everybody uses it, but nobody really understands how it works. Something as common as a microwave. Even today, people don't know how it works. Well, that's how television was for me. I had this thing in my house that was like the centerpiece of our, our communal family. And when we all came together and hung out after you know, TV dinners, I remember having TV dinners, man, on Friday nights, soupy sales. He was a local comedian. You probably never heard of him, but oh, yeah, sales. yeah, I know who that is. Yeah. He lived in Detroit and man, sitting around TV at seven o'clock. I still remember the time actually seven o'clock on a Friday night. My mom would make us, you know, a baked potato, which I thought was a treat because we only got it on Friday nights. And I, it was the only time we got to have a baked potato, <laughs> but we would all sit around. We'd each have our own baked potato, you know, and sit it up with our TV trays, you know, our TV tables, that that was kind of a big deal because we never got to use them during the week. Only on the weekends could were we allowed to watch television and eat at the same time. And for me to be able to learn how that all came together was just such a great experience. And, and I want to thank Mike Shields. I don't know if he'll hear this or, you know, read my commentary anywhere, but you know, that, that was really one of the most exciting things for me because it was just learning how television actually came together and, and then to be a part of it, going back to dubbing tapes. And then I promise I'll shut the fuck up and get to the next question. But when I first learned uh, and I think it was a, a guy, but we called him Polish Joe. His name was Joe Chupik. Joe Chupik was the Kevin Dunn of the AWA. All right. And I just ran into Joe about a year and a half. Joe, if you're out there, you're listening to this. I hope you're doing well, my friend. But Joe Chupik was the one who actually showed me how to dub tapes. And I was so excited to be a part of that process that while my job was syndication and sales, later, you know, some on-camera stuff. On the weekends, I would work all night long. I would go to the studio because you had to sit there. You, you, it wasn't automated. You had to be a part of the So when, you know, one show was done, you had to thread the tape again and, you know, set it all up and, you know, 
continue recording. So I had to dub like 75 or 80 tapes. And that took, you know, a couple nights. But I did that on my free time. That's what I did for fun. On on Friday night or Saturday night, I would finish my work that I was getting paid to do. And then just because I loved being a part of the process, about eight or nine o'clock at night, I'd show up at the post-production studios and I would dub tapes till five or six o'clock in the morning. Not because it was my job. I wasn't getting paid for it. I just wanted to be a part of the process and learn. And and very, very grateful for that opportunity because I don't think I would have ever begun to understand television at all had Mike Shields not given me that opportunity and I had not, you know, had the chance to, you know, learn on the job. It was a great experience. Let's uh let's talk about when this thing is actually gonna go down back in eighty nine. They're gonna sort of call this the birth of the new AWA and this is on the WWE network. You should go watch it, but we're greeted with Vern and his pet and it's all under the hidden gems category. If you want to see it, you can just search for AWA or team challenge series and you'll eventually find it. By but the way, Conrad, that pet was a German short hair pointer by the name of, I think the dog's name was Heidi. I hunted over that dog with Vern pheasant hunted. Was a great dog. Vern loved that dog. Just a little side note. Well, listen, that's why we're listening here is is those little uh those little um nuggets of information you can drop on us. Yeah. So the uh episode thirty one of eighty three weeks, which is uh, our AWA episode in the archives, I think you talked about Chroma Key a little bit. And I don't know, man. I just, you know, we, we, we've seen this a lot on like old Saturday night and Spain events, you know, you would see those guys cut a promo and then they would have like their, their giant logo behind them. And you could see a little glow here, or there, but this was pretty cutting edge technology and it couldn't have been exactly cheap. So this was a, another additional investment in this technology by Vern just sort of grabbing at straws. Um, as you mentioned, the AWA show is all-star wrestling. It's on ESPN. You're pretty standard pro wrestling television program, but this new product is going to give the company something to market to independent television stations around the U S those syndicated shows like judge Judy these days, for instance, and that's an elaborate revenue sharing concept with TV stations and as you've mentioned, you sold some syndicated TV. And I think once upon a time, Jim Ross did the same for WCW and Jim Crockett and Bill Watts. And this is a little different though, because this chroma key, I believe the way this would be done and correct me if I'm wrong, cause Lord knows I wasn't there, but the entire room, including the floor is covered in one color, usually green, which is why people refer to it as a green screen. Sometimes it's blue, but the wrestler is going to walk from the back towards the camera. And since the background is all one color, they can then cut that out and replace it with whatever the producer wants. And in this instance, it's the same image of a cheering crowd on each side. Only one of the images was flipped to make it look different. And both are sped up to probably one and a half or two, two X to make it seem like there's more excitement. What do you remember about the room they filmed this in? What can you tell us about that? I painted it. 
<laughs> like right now, as I sit here and, and hopefully we'll be doing our shows, you know, uh, uh, we'll stream them and with, with cameras and all that at some point. But right now, as I sit here, I'm sitting in front of my computer. I've got a little Logitech camera sitting on top of my computer and behind me, there is a green screen. So if, if we were streaming this right now live, and in fact, if you go to, you know, after 83 weeks on YouTube, for example, the, the 83 weeks <clears throat> YouTube show, I do that show every week and I'm sitting in front of a green screen. But as you're watching it, if you, if you see it in social media, I've got this picture um, of, of mountains out, out on a deck and it looks like I'm sitting outside, you know, on the, on, on the deck of a ranch somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's just a green screen and I bought it for like $119 on, on Google or Amazon. Um, the technology today that we have allows you to do things that we just take for granted back then, as you pointed out, it was all brand new, but there's two ways that you can affect, you know, chroma key or to apply chroma key. You can either have a screen like I do right now. And oftentimes you'll see, like if you see images of, a spokesperson, you know, in the process of producing something, you'll see them standing in front of a, you know, models use it all the time. They're very common in photography where you want to make it look like you've got, here's Conrad Thompson standing on top of Mount Everest. Well, Conrad doesn't have to go <laughs> climb Mount Everest. All he has to do is stand in the studio with a green screen behind him and you can project the image of Mount Everest and people that don't know any better think that Conrad Thompson climbed Mount Everest. And, oh my God, he's, he's, he's saying hello to us from high atop a mountain. And, and the technology today is you could buy it all for about 180 bucks and you could be in business. But back then it was brand new. But there's two ways that you could, you know, at that time, you could either use a physical screen which is nothing more than a big green sheet. Um, or you could paint it. They had chroma key paint, uh, chroma key, color, the, the, the appropriate color of green for paint. So yours truly, you know, went down to the local Menards, which was the Minneapolis version of a Home Depot before Home Depot. And you could buy all the green screen paint you needed or you'd go to some other place that supplied it. And you could paint your walls green and in effect have a permanent green screen or chroma key, if you will. And that was my job to, to go to the studio and it was a television studio. I think it was WTCN was the studio that we shot this in, in Minneapolis over on highway 55 in golden Valley, I think. And um, yeah, it was. And my job was, to, you know, they gave us the studio or didn't give it to us Vern had to rent it. And I had to paint the area that we were conducting all these entrances in so that we could make it look like there were people there. We could project the imagery instead of Mount Everest. We projected people that had been previously taped from other events, like down in Rochester where Vern typically produces his television for ESPN, but they'd take crowd shots and get shots of people reacting put them in the can, edit them, well, edit them appropriately, put them in the can. And then when it came time for us to create this illusion that there were actually people there watching and actually reacting to what people at home were seeing, that was being projected, you know, via chroma key to make it look like you were really in front of people. But my job to answer your question 17 minutes later was <laughs> to, <laughs> was to, paint the walls green instead of having that physical chroma key background. You watch this for the first time 
Lord and forever this morning. Do you think music like some sort of entrance music would have helped? It feels like it would have in a major way. Yeah. Look, you can never underestimate or undervalue audio, you know, and I think we all know again, it's kind of shifting gears now back to present day for me, at least one of the things that I miss the most about a live crowd isn't seeing them there because for the most part, a live crowd isn't all that animated. You know, it's kind of like a visual background noise, Yeah. you know, but the audio is where I really miss the energy of a live crowd. And whether it's the actual crowd audio or even the music, especially the music and during entrances, that's that's where this concept really fell down. NMLS number 65084 equal housing lender. Woo! Of course, by now, everyone has heard about the historically low mortgage rates. In fact, a lot of families are getting interest rates in the twos. That's right, the twos. But just last week, one expert said that we're on borrowed time with these low rates. So if saving money is important to your family, the time to act is now. Find out how much money you can save right now by getting a better rate, skipping your next two house payments, and cutting years of unnecessary payments off of your loan at Save with Conrad. Com. Let's, um, just your opinion at the time. Let's not think about Eric 2020 version of his way of thinking. Let's go back to 1989. When you saw the final product, just the ring entrance alone, did you think, God damn, this is the future or boy, this is kind of some corny hokey looking shit. Neither. Um, I didn't feel like it was the future because again, I was like 18 months in the business and I was just learning how to dub a fucking tape. So my, my opinion of television and production, I was still, I was in kindergarten, right? Right. right. So I didn't think about it too much, but what I felt at the time was, wow, you know, talk about making chicken salad, how to chicken shit. This is as good as you could possibly hope for under this, you know, under the conditions. And I, you know, I probably didn't think through it like I would now, but my reaction was, holy crap, we, we dodged a bullet. We were able to produce something different. I thought it was cool at the time. It was cool. It was cutting edge at the time. Nobody had ever tried anything like that. It was so new in so many ways. And it, uh, I, I wasn't embarrassed by it. Let's put it that way. I knew why we were doing it. Right. So, you know, any negativity or criticism I may have had for it deep down inside was completely, um, set aside by the fact that I I knew we were doing it for a reason. And I felt like, wow, this, this solution was kind of cool. I didn't think it was sustainable at the time. I knew once look, and part of it was because even though I wasn't a part of the AWA business discussions, you know, nobody ever said, I never got to be a part of a meeting where people sat around and went, okay, we're not drawing any money here. We can't, we, we, we couldn't, we can't attract fly. We can't attract flies. If we rolled our talent and dog shit, what do we do? Um, I wasn't a part of those, but I knew, you know, just being in the same general proximity of the business, I knew that we were dying. I knew the struggle and I would, by this time I was a little bit closer on a personal level with Vern and, and Greg, 
and and some of the key people around AWA at the time, you know, Wahoo McDaniels was there, Ray Stevens was there. And I spent a lot of time hanging with Ray and Wahoo. And I would and they were in close proximity to Vern. So through them, I had a pretty good idea how dismal things were uh, and how tight things were financially. So my my thought about it was just, wow, man, maybe this will work. I was hopeful. Well, let's uh, let's talk about once they're in the ring. This is a more difficult challenge for, you know, trying to create that digital audience feel green screen is going to work best when there's one large object that you can cut out of the picture. So a wrestling ring and ropes and multiple wrestlers and all the objects in the frame would be much harder for a computer to automatically remove, especially back then. So instead they're going to wrestle in an empty studio with black curtains and fake crowd noise. And during some of the entrances, you can even see the cameras mounted to the ceiling in the context of 2020, does this really seem as weird of an idea as it would have been pretty much any other year? I'm not sure how to answer that again, because at the time it was such an innovative idea. It was an experiment, right? You know, it was taking advantage of the technology that Vern could afford at the time and doing the best they could do with what they had. And that was all Mike Shields. You know, Mike is the one that really was the architect behind all of this and the attempt to execute it. And yeah, it was weird. Of course it was weird. Even then it was weird. Even in 1989 to produce a wrestling show and with no crowd. Right was as abstract in 1989 as it is today. The difference was the technology, for example, in the Thunderdome that's available, and granted, you have to pay a lot of money for that. That technology didn't exist. You know, Mike Mike Shields did the absolute best he could do with what they had, but to, to I think, answer your question, it was just as bizarre then as it would be today. And there were obviously, I think I painted that room too. Wasn't it kind of a weird pink color? Uh, the lighting was really strange. I mean, again, I was trying to camouflage it, make it look cool, but it, it was bizarre even then. Yeah. So the pilot episode begins with a typical 80s style theme and a bunch of scantily clad cheerleaders shouting, hey, 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 for the AWA. <laughs> the, the cheers don't match up with the music, but whatever. We see a preview of the action in the open. We've got wrestling and rock music and ladies boxing. And then we get that slow zoom towards Vern. He's got that dog in his lap and he's on a, a boat dock. His tackle box is next to him. And this feels like it's been carefully crafted. I don't know, just the way he's presented. I mean, he, he, this almost feels like the look and the shot. This could be like a, a politician's promo here. How uh, cognizant was the office and Vern himself and the way Vern was presented to fans on TV in this era? Unless you lived in Minnesota, you know, it, it would be hard to explain. But Vern was loved in Minnesota. Now, even when wrestling wasn't necessarily, well, AWA was hot for a long time. It was the hottest ticket in town. I can't overemphasize how successful Vern Gagne was, you know, in the seventies in particular in the early eighties. Um, but even when the AWA was drawing its last breath 
and nobody would come to the venue. You know, they couldn't draw 500 people in a 16,000 you know seat arena. It didn't change the way people in Minnesota, and I'm talking about not just wrestling fans, probably more so non-wrestling fans, felt about Vern. He was he's a very beloved individual in in Minnesota, and and for a good reason. You know, Vern spent a lot of time supporting causes, supporting amateur athletics, not just amateur wrestling, which that's how I first met Vern Gagne. The first time I ever ended up on an all-star wrestling show in AWA was probably in 1974 was my first on-camera experience in professional wrestling when I was wrestling for... um, the USA uh, AAU freestyle team, and we were taking on the Swedish team. Um, and, you know, the it was part of the AAU and the Amateur Athletic Association in, in Minnesota. And we were all charged, all of us who were part of the team, we had to go raise money for this. Mm. You know, it wasn't publicly funded. We, we had to promote it. And... I, because I knew Vern Gunn, I was a fan of all-star wrestling. I was fresh out of high school. I, I called the AWA offices, ended up on the phone with a guy by the name of Wally Carbo, who only people in Minnesota will remember that name. And I said, Wally, my name is Eric Bischoff. I wrestle for the Minnesota AEU freestyle team. We're wrestling against, you know, Sweden is coming to the United States and we're going to be wrestling against them and we need to raise some money. And I don't even know how to do a Wally Carbo impersonation but while he says sure kid come on down and my very first promo was at the same wtcn studios over off highway 55 in golden valley and i remember showing up there with a really close friend of mine who was also on the wrestling team and they were they were taping the show in a studio let me set the stage a little bit i was so excited because now now here i am i'm maybe 18 years old no i was 19 at the time Fresh out of high school, this was before I started, you know, college, during that summer, and I'm, me and my buddy are sitting out in the parking lot, like the show, I think they started taping at noon or one o'clock, something like that, and I knew I was, you know, Wally Carbo said, sure, kid, come on down, you know, Vern will promote it for you, and me and my buddy showed up, we pulled up to the back of this television station, which was just, you know, it was kind of a spaceship all by itself, right? Big old satellite dish, which I'd never been up close to before. It was all new shit to me. And my buddy and I pull up, we get there like two hours early because who wants to be late for this? And as we're sitting there in our car waiting, you know, to, to go in when it was the appropriate time, all of a sudden all this talent started showing up. Mm. Now I'm for the first time in my life, I'm seeing guys who I've watched on television other than being, you know, I had been to wrestling events in the arena, but I had never been in, you know, I've never seen them out of character. Right. I've never seen them out on the street really. Um, other than cause I had met Vern, you know, a year or two earlier at some high school wrestling events and things like that, but it was very, very brief, very brief, like. Hey, how are you? Ooh, congratulations. Keep up the good work. Boom. Off he was. But other than that kind of proximity to Vern, I'd never seen, you know, wrestlers in public before. And my buddy and I were, not only we were excited, he wasn't on television with me. I was there, I'm doing it by myself, but he was with me. Not only we were excited that we get to promote our amateur wrestling event on Vern Gagne's show. That in itself was exciting. 
But now for us to sit in our car and watch these guys, you know, I remember seeing uh, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. They were the high flyers at the time. They were the first ones to arrive. I go, holy smokes. And then Wahoo McDaniel shows up and with Ray Stevens. I was like, oh, my God, it's Wahoo McDaniel. It's Ray the Crippler Stevens. We're going to be in the same building with them. We're going to be in the same show with them. I was, I was as marked out as any 19 year old could possibly be, but in a very positive way. I was so excited. Um, I'm sorry. What, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were just talking about, you know, going and seeing all the guys go into, uh, into the building out of character yeah. and all that jazz. Yeah. And, and, and again, that was the first time I had ever stepped foot in front of the camera. And, and, oh gosh, oh, so Marty O'Neill, Marty O'Neill was Gene Okerlund before Gene Okerlund. Marty was this little guy. He was a bald headed guy. He had cataracts. So he always wore dark sunglasses whenever he was on television. He must've been about 70 at the time, but he had the kind of voice that Vern loved. He had that old school four packs of camel, no filter, bottle of scotch a day, kind of growling kind of voice. You know, he, Vern loved those radio, deep, raspy radio voices, and Marty had that. But he was about five foot two, <laughs> which is the other thing that, that Vern liked. He always believed that announcers should be small so that the wrestlers look big. So Marty had it all. I mean, he had a face for radio, but man, he had a great voice and he was just a little tiny guy. And that's who I got to do my, uh, my promotion with for my amateur wrestling event. But anyway, after we see, uh, Vern Gagne do his best political open here, we're going to go. I know what it was. I'm sorry. You were asking me about how we were talking about Vern. I'm sorry, Connor. I'm just so sorry. I'm so rude. I hate being interrupted. It's my pet peeve. And here I am interrupting you, but I just remembered what you asked me. Vern Gagne was loved in Minnesota. Right. I think the the scene that you described with Vern and his dog on the lake, that was in part to kind of get the state of Minnesota behind Vern. That was Vern's Vern was working the audience. That shot that you described was Vern doing his best to influence people in the state of Minnesota uh, to be on his side in this court battle that he was in uh, with the state of Minnesota, you know, trying to hold on to his property. That's what that was. Man, that was a long way around. That was like three trips around the fucking block to get to a simple question and answer. I'm sorry. You know, the old phrase, um, you ask the guy the time and he tells you how to make a watch. I just told you how to build the factory that makes a watch. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I enjoy most about our podcast is that it's all about nostalgia. It makes me think about, you know, being a kid and growing up as such a big wrestling fan and growing up cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid. But most of us had to give it up when we realized it's full of sugar and junk that we really shouldn't be eating. But then when you realize, Hey, if I cut out all the carbs and the sugar, there's nothing I can even eat anymore, but you still need to eat breakfast, right? I mean, we've always heard it's the most important meal of the day. And that makes sense. You know, if you, if you start your, uh, your engine going the right way in the morning, you're going to be more productive at work. You're going to get more shit done, but how do we make this happen? Magic spoon. Magic Spoon is a sponsor of this podcast, and I got to tell you, we are a fan in the Thompson household, and here's why you're going to dig it. Zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in every serving. 
I've also got four really badass flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing. It almost feels too good to be true. It's keto friendly. It's gluten free. It's grain free. It's soy free. It's low carb and it's GMO free. Uh, I have absolutely fell in love uh, with magic spoon. My wife is a big fan of fruity and, and you can probably guess what that tastes similar to. I'm a big fan of cocoa. Uh, our daughter really likes blueberry. You're going to love it too. Find out which one you like the best. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks, grab a variety pack and try them all today. Be sure to use that promo code 83 weeks at checkout. You're going to get free shipping for that. We should mention magic spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash 83 weeks and use the promo code 83 weeks for free shipping. And we thank magic spoon for sponsoring the podcast. We believe in it. You will too. Try the cocoa buddy. You're going to dig it. Magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks. So once we see this shot of Vern, then we go to the host of the show. Uh, Ralph is seated next to your man, Greg. It's a small production room. It looks like it's designed for one person. The two are seated uncomfortably close to each other. It feels like an old Saturday night live skit. And they're actually calling this area satellite base. And they're both wearing, uh, workout like windsuits. It's just quite the look and the concept is so eighties. Oh my God. So eighties and just weird. Either way, it's described to us almost like virtual reality telling us that we're going to feel exactly what the wrestlers feel in the ring. And we'll be closer than ever before. And, uh, Ralph is going to promise that we're going to see wrestling and Beverly Hills knockouts and rock music. And I, we should bring some context to this a few years prior to this, Vince McMahon was on a tear with rock and wrestling. And, you know, they even made that a cartoon. And of course, all of the stuff with MTV and, you know, captain Lou being in, in Cindy Lauper's music video and just on and on. But I mean, is this sort of monkey see monkey do with, with Vern no, thinking, well, no, if- no, no, no. Vern had also produced, I, mean, I can't remember what year it was. Now I'm curious. I'm going to look it up when the show's over, but Vern had produced a live event called, I think it was called Russell rock in an outdoor stadium. Um, God, I don't want to say it because I know I'm going to be it's, wrong. It's, it's the Russell rock rumble and it was from 86. When was it? 86, 23,000 fans attended. I'm sorry. Say that again. I, I interrupted you. Uh, 1986. Yeah, no, no. Vern, Vern saw, Vern saw the advantage of combining music and, and wrestling and, and had tried to do so previously. So I, I don't think this was monkey see monkey do necessarily. It's just funny to me. I guess what I meant to say there, maybe I didn't express it properly is in this era, wrestling promoters believed, Hey man, these kids are into that rock and roll. We've got to have that. And it just became something everybody was doing. I mean, you know, a few years prior to this, we would see Jerry Jarrett start to incorporate it. And of course, world-class had done it, but we're very, it's very much an eighties thing to combine rock and roll and professional wrestling. Um, still is. Yeah. Still is WWE is, I mean, how many times have they used major rock acts to be a part of WrestleMania, whether it's Fred Durst or kid rock or whoever, you know I mean? It's, it's still 
it's a nice little adjunct to the wrestling product. But before we skip over Ralph. Yes, because he's a big time NHL commentator. Yeah. Ralph left his name is Ralph Strangis. His father was an attorney in Minneapolis. Uh, Ralph and I worked together. I don't know for about a year or so. Good guy, funny guy. And he left AWA probably around 90 or 91, whenever it was, and went on to become the play-by-play guy for the Minnesota North Stars, which became the Dallas Stars. So he literally, Ralph, jumped from (laughs) the scene that you're describing as corny and bizarre as it was to being a legitimate sportscaster in the NHL. Unfortunately, just a, a few days ago, it was in the Fort Worth star telegram that Ralph is battling bladder cancer and oh, he no. just shared the news saying they got it early. He's going through the right kind of therapy. It's not full blown chemo, but it's still not fun. So thoughts and prayers to your old friend, Ralph, who's, uh, really battling right now. Well, I'm sorry to hear that Ralph. If you hear this, read about it. Godspeed brother. He's a, he was a great guy to work with funny as hell, funny as hell. So let's get back to, uh, the, the show here. Our first entrance is probably the most, I don't know, man, this is, this has got to be when a lot of fans turn the damn channel, but it's a low res eighties graphic with the wrestler's signature name and photo. And then the green screen magic begins Tommy jammer makes his entrance wearing a neon green jacket, which would have been hell on a green screen. So either way though, he's going to walk forwards while pretending to work the crowd on either side. Jammer gets (laughs) into the ring where his opponent, Tom Burton is waiting on him. And once in the ring, we see there are no fans in the arena for the first time, but throughout all the matches, we get these sort of weird cutaway shots to people in bars or restaurants (laughs) cheering for something. Perhaps with the idea being that satellite base would be potentially taking cameras in living rooms and restaurants across the country. And and a new piece of technology from satellite base is the ability to do slow motion replays. It's a basic thing now, but they made a a real spectacle of it here. So when they hit a big move, like a clothesline or a body slam, uh, all Ralph has to do is shout, punch that button, Greg. And then we see a replay. (laughs) Uh, the first slow motion use on a body slam shows the recipient not selling it at all and getting up instantly, but they're trying something. You saw this for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? I don't drink hard liquor. rarely. (laughs) Like if it's a special occasion and someone comes over and you know, I may have Jameson every once in a while, maybe a couple times a year. I'm just not a hard liquor guy, but as I, the first time I saw that I had to sit down and take a shot, it was so bad. And I just have to remind myself, Hey, it was 1989. Everything was new to everybody. Yeah. It was a learning experiment or learning experience. And it was an experiment. So I, I, I just have to remind myself when I see something like this, it was 1989, it was 1989. They had $12 in their checking account. They did the best they could with what they had. It was horrible. Tommy Jammer, Donna Ganya, who Donna Ganya spent a lot of time as the ring announcer. Um, couple of years anyway. I think all the time I was doing announcing Donna Ganya was the ring announcer, especially for ESPN. Donna Ganya had a thing 
for Tommy Jammer, which is probably why Tommy Jammer was in the AWA at the time. But yeah, she loved Tommy Jammer. I don't know if, I don't I don't think anything ever came of it, but ooh, she had a thing. That's all she could talk about was Tommy Jammer, Tommy Jammer, Tommy Jammer. Tommy gonna be here today? Is Tommy cutting interviews today? Are we flying Tommy in this month? Is Tommy coming? Said, Jesus, Donna, get a grip. But she loved Tommy. Well, Tommy's a good dude, by the way. Tommy good. wins with a power slam and a surfer splash at 141. Of course he did. <laughs> I wonder if he ever hit that surfer splash outside of the ring. From there, um, we get a kind of kind of thinking he did, but I don't want to say. <laughs> such From there, we get a backstage segment with two wrestlers standing side by side in front of the chroma key. It's the Blitzers captain Baron von Raschke next to the Snipers captain Sergeant Slaughter. He's wearing that GI Joe logo too, and the two are going to discuss their friendly rivalry. With Raschke saying his man Paul Diamond is going to face Colonel De Beers from the Snipers later in the night, and then we get a backstage segment also in front of the chroma key. This time, and boy, is this bad. It's the destruction crew, your old pals, Mike Enos and, uh, Wayne Bloom. Wayne Bloom. And they're going to start knocking down buildings with sledgehammers <laughs> and the buildings collapse behind them. It, it looks as bad as it sounds. I, whew. of course, these are the future Beverly brothers. We know they're talented performers, but man, this promo, this has got to be one of the most embarrassing things on the entire show. Yeah, <laughs> it was bad. Now it's almost funny. Now it should be like a cult thing, right? Yes, absolutely. It, it, yeah, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> I love just, yeah, uh, we should. No, I was going to say, and, and when, you know, Mike, Mike Enos was pretty quiet. You know, he didn't, he, he wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful. Wayne, on the other hand, was a little more animated and he had a tough time with this. He was struggling doing this because he even, he, and he was brand new in the business. He'd been in the business for about a week longer than me at this point. So he was still 18 months green. But even then, Wayne knew that this was really bad. <laughs> so he struggled with, with pulling it off. Wayne, yeah, Mike was just like, hey, whatever, they're paying me. I'll do whatever they want me to do. But Wayne, Wayne was a little bit more animated about it. And it took a little bit to get Wayne to do it. Well, I'm glad he did because it's, uh, it's wrestling history. My goodness. Uh, we gotta get, we gotta talk about their entrance here because they're going to come out with these sledgehammers. They're going to be wearing these orange, almost like traffic cop vests. And then we've got their man with them, Johnny Valiant. He's their manager and their opponents are going to be Ricky Rice and Jerry Lynn. Yes. That Jerry Lynn, um, they're going to get the win with a doomsday device on Jerry Lynn and four fifty three. but Greg Gagne is going to call for a DQ since moves off the top are illegal. And then this fellow named Eric Bischoff, who's already got a little more salt in his hair than you come to know on nitro. is going to come to the ring and get comments from Johnny V and the destruction crew. And, uh, yeah. What'd you think? Seeing this match, Johnny V as their manager, the vest, the finish, an, our very young Jerry Lynn. And then of course you're doing ringside promos after this is a lot to unpack here. A lot of big stars a lot of history and a lot of future history, if you will, that's going to come from everyone who's involved in this segment. Isn't that great? 
you know, when you go back and you watch this stuff, never would I have imagined when I was doing that interview. I mean, I was just great. Every day that I could show up and work was like the best day of my career at that point. I wasn't thinking about, gee, I wonder if I could ever do something bigger than what I'm doing right now, which is unusual for me because my nature is to Big. always try to think bigger and do bigger. I'm never satisfied with the status quo ever in my life. Have I ever been <clears throat> satisfied with status quo, which has been both a blessing and a burden. But if you go back and you watch some of the things now that are so early on, you think, wow, and not just involving me, but involving, you know, people early, Jerry Lynn, you know, look at Jerry Lynn and this, he looks up first of all, he looks like he's 12 and who to thunk. You know, back in 1989, that Jerry Jerry Lynn would have had the career th that he had and still has to this day in AEW now. And, and God, if we only would have known then what we all know now, wouldn't that be fascinating? And I always yeah. think about things in that perspective. It's hard for me to be critical of anything that took place in, you know, 89 and, you know, in the early, early years, because it was what it was at that time. And, and at that time it was kind of exciting, you know, because we'd show up and we were getting paid to be a part of the wrestling business. We were being paid to be a part of television. That was so, it's hard to explain to people. And, you know, if you want to be a hater, if, if you live for the dirt and all of that, you can say, oh, you were just a mark. Yeah, I was. So was Jerry Lynn. So was everybody else that was in that building at the time, because we were all so excited just to be a part of what we were a part of. We all knew what it was. We all knew what it wasn't. Everybody was familiar with what the WWF was doing and how we paled in comparison. And yes, some of it was almost, you know, embarrassing. And, and, and but damn, you know, when you go back and you see stuff like this and you see where these, who would have thunk, you know, Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos would have go on to become the Beverly brothers. And yeah, they weren't in the WWF for a long time, but they were there and they were prominently featured for a long time. So I, I find it fascinating to go back and look at some of these scenes and yes, it's easy to be critical and make fun of it and, and laugh at it. But it's also really interesting to see the commitment and what became the future of, of a lot of people that were a part of this. I would have never guessed in my life that what is this 1989 right um a mere six years later i'd be running wcw and be the number one wrestling promotion in the world think about that six years six years well maybe seven it it's it, to this day i when i even when i hear myself say this in this moment i'm going fuck that's that's crazy because I knew what was going on in my mind in 1989. And like I said a moment ago, I was just so grateful and excited to be a part of the moment I was in, regardless of how cheesy it was or now in re retrospect, embarrassing it was. But at the time, I didn't feel that way at the time. I was, I was on cloud nine. And then to go, wow, and seven years later, you'll be running, a, Hulk Hogan will be working for you. Randy Savage will be working for you. You'll be the number, you'll be working for Ted Turner. You'll be the number one wrestling company in the entire world. Where a mere seven years previous, I, I was probably in 1989, I was lucky to get a paycheck. 
It's crazy. I love it. I love going back and looking at things like this and putting it into context and not looking at it for what it was, but looking at things for what we all became for better or worse. I find it fascinating. Let's talk about your hair. We got a ton of questions about your hair. I know it sounds silly, but you know, I actually thought when I saw this, first of all, I did a double take cause I don't remember seeing your hair look like this before with that color. But then I thought, you know what? Eric was in sales at the time. I wonder if there was a sales strategy to, Hey, I'm younger and I'm going to be selling to older people. I need to sort of assimilate. I need to look like they are. And, uh, I need to give a little credibility when maybe I look like I'm wet behind the ears. Was that a sales strategy to rock a little grayer hair? Fuck no, man. I started turning gray when I was 26 years old, 25 or 26. It, 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 it was a moment in my life. I'll never forget. And I had several of them around the same time. Well, some of them a little bit later, but like the first time I ever noticed a gray hair, I was like 26, 26, 27, maybe. Um, I remember I was, you know, I was either shaving or brushing my teeth or something. I'm looking in the mirror in the morning and I see a gray hair. Now my hair before it started turning gray was not quite jet black, but damn close, really dark hair. And I see this gray hair in my head. And I, and I remember saying to Lori, Mrs. B I said, damn, I've got a dead hair. One of my hairs died. That's odd. And I plucked it out. Didn't think too much about it. I didn't think I was going gray. I was too young to go gray. So I just assumed one of my hairs, like, you know, wasn't getting enough nourishment or maybe another hair beat its ass or whatever. Um, I just thought I had a dead hair. So I plucked it out. About a couple weeks later, same thing happens. I look up, I go, man, I got two dead hairs. Why is my hair dying? I plucked both of them out. Now fast forward to about 1989 and I'm going, well, fuck, I'm just turning gray. How could this happen? You know, 1989, how old was I in 1989? 55 was 34 years old. Now I've got pretty much a full head, you know, full head of hair. Obviously it's all, my hair has always been like ridiculously thick, but now the salt and pepper thing, by that time I figured it out. Okay. I'm just getting gray hair. The other, the same thing happened. Uh, this is stupid, right? I'm, basically admitting that I could be pretty fucking stupid from time to time. Not long. Well, it was probably eight years ago, 10 years ago. I looked down on my arm and go, God, I got a dead hair on my arm. Why is that? I plucked that fucker out. Cause you know, who wants gray hair on their arms? Now I look down on my arm as I'm recording this podcast with you and every hair. Well, not everyone. I got a couple that are gray, but <laughs> I, 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 I got to shave my arm, my arms now because the proliferation of gray hair, but the worst Conrad, the absolute worst is when you're in the shower Oh no! or, or worse. If you, if you're in the middle of a blue chew moment, Oh no. The first time you look down. Oh no. Yeah. Th- that's like, that's when you know you're getting old. By that time I had gotten comfortable with the gray hair. I, it, it doesn't bother me anymore. I shave the gray hair on my arms, but to look down in the shower and go, fuck, this is really old. 
but <laughs> it is what it is. Carry on. Well, we're glad you're race. here. Manscaped. That's what Manscaped is for. <laughs> Next up, we got Sergeant Slaughter in front of the Chroma Key doing a promo about De Beers, calling him scum. De Beers is a heel and Slaughter is a baby face. So there's got to be some sort of tension between the two. Teams, by the way, were chosen at random, according to Ralph and Greg. And then Slaughter turns to the right side of the frame and finishes the promo, which is a little weird. Uh, De Beers is up front in the chromo key. He's looking at the left side of the screen to talk to Slaughter. And the illusion is that they're standing nearby and looking at each other. In reality, they probably do this interview in the exact same spot with different backgrounds and then edit it together. Um, I guess we should mention that De Beers was supposed to be in front of the South African flag during the shot, but there was a problem. The South African flag at the time was orange, white, and blue, not yellow, white, and purple. And while it didn't exist at the time in 2014, this design would become to be known as the non-binary flag to represent those who don't feel that their gender identities with, uh, they fit with a male or a female label. So Colonel De Beers is standing in front of a cropped non-binary flag. So there you go. A little bit of fun fact for you today. And it just, just a point on that. And again, it's a kind of, is the word genuflect? I will just say reflect, reflect. You, you look at Colonel De Beers character and he was now Colonel De Beers was from Portland. Okay. He's from the, the Don Owens territory. And his character was from South Africa, and I dare say, uh, while not overtly racist in tone, certainly represented the perception of South Africa and the conflict and the, and the controversy that was a part of it at that time. Can you imagine trying to pull off a character like Colonel De Beers in today's environment? No. You know, and, it, and I think that's a, I mean, it's a good thing, right? Look, not only has technology evolved, but as a society, you know, we have as well, but it's just, again, one of those things you look back and go, wow, you know, just like we talked about with technology and chroma key. And, you know, this is maybe the first attempt, albeit an embarrassing one, but nonetheless an attempt to kind of frame what we were doing as virtual reality. And yes, this whole satellite you know, or, or, or the command central and the satellite shots and the cameras from the bars. Yeah. That all seems like twilight zone, you know, really good weed kind of shit right now. But you know, back then it was an attempt, but not only has technology in advance and production advanced so much, but you know, just imagine trying to create a character like Colonel De Beers was back then. It's fascinating. Uh, let's talk about the next skit here. Uh, the Beverly Hills knockouts. They're going to show us some women's boxing. One of the female athletes, I believe her name is Mustang Sally. <laughs> She's literally wearing lingerie and a jacket and the jacket isn't long for this world. It looks like a lot of the women in the audience are in their underwear too. And the boxing trunks have the thighs cut out. So we get to see, uh, well, a little bit of the butt cheekage and Slaughterhouse Sean is going to face the blonde bomber in what begins as a boxing match. And it looks, uh, a little silly. The boxing gloves are enormous and midway through the blonde bomber is going to take off her gloves and start wrestling. There's multiple rounds here. 
I don't know, man, this, uh, this didn't age. Well, what'd you think? Ugh, yeah, it was bad. Even for me, then it was bad. And I'm, I'm, I might be wrong about this. I want to be careful how I say it. However, I think these women were part of a show in Las Vegas and somehow Vern and whoever put this together knew of them because of the time that AWA spent promoting shows in Vegas at the old showboat hotel and casino. I think that's how this all came about because it wasn't something that we'd ever done before or did afterwards. So I, I think it was just a matter of going, Hey, there's this Vegas, this is cheesy Vegas, you know, stripper boxer thing going on. Why don't we make them a part of the show is what that was all about. But yeah, it was pretty fucking horrible. It just, uh, it feels like a major departure from something we had seen from Vern over the years. Is, does Vern just think he has to do this to compete? I mean, I don't know, man, this it's in stark contrast to this dear old kind old friendly soul. We see sitting on the bank of the, of the lake there. It's just weird. It, it was weird. And it, you're right. It was a, it was 180 degree departure for, you know, Vern was a traditionalist. I mean, Vern, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have first been exposed to the wrestling business from a psychology point of view. And I mean, just a very basic foundation of what makes wrestling work. My first exposure was to Vern Gagne, and I'm really grateful for that because it still is today, in my opinion, the foundation for what makes good wrestling today. Right. But this, this experiment was clearly desperation and I doubt that it went well, I went down well with Vern. I mean, he did it obviously. Um, but I'm guessing never talked to Vern about it. I'm guessing it was painful for him to do it because it was such a departure, but he was desperate and he was willing to do desperate things to, to try to survive. Were you there when they shot this? No, no. All right. Listen up. If you're a smoker, I've got a life hack for you. It's Lucy nicotine. Lucy nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers who were looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, we have tobacco alternatives that don't suck. I spent a lot of time on this research and development was like three years because it was made for people, not patients. And the result nicotine gum that tastes great. You can get it wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate, and they've even got a kick-ass cough drop. I'm sorry. It's a lozenge, but old rednecks call it a cough drop. It's still got the same four milligrams of nicotine that the gum does, but this comes in a cherry ice flavor. So all of the products actually taste great. They have a great flavor, but here's my favorite part about it. It's convenient and it's discreet. You don't have to go stand outside and smoke anymore. You don't have to excuse yourself instead. Oh, and by the way, you don't want to come back in stinking, do you? That's what you've been doing. This is much better. You can enjoy these products anywhere in a car ride with somebody else on a flight with a whole bunch of folks at work, at the office, in the gym. Listen, my parents smoked. I came from a household of smokers. I know how hard it is to quit, but it's 2020 time to get rid of your damn cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple. And you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. 
Grilling JR listeners can go to lucy.co and use promo code JR to get 20% off all their products, including the gum and lozenges. That's lucy.co and use the promo code JR at checkout. Also, I have to give you this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Duh. Lucy.co. Be sure to use that promo code JR. Uh, next up, we've uh, we've got a shot back at Satellite Base to talk with our friends Ralph and Greg a little more. They're talking about the scoring, which is already well under the way. And uh, Larry's Legends has 16. Baron's Blitzers are in second with 15. And Sarge's Snipers trail with 13. And now we're set for Paul Diamond versus Colonel De Beers in a King of the Hill match. Uh, Diamond's going to deliver a pre-match promo from Outer Space. Oh God, I don't know what to say about that. This I is- can't even make shit up. <laughs> I can't even, tr- I, can- I can't even try to frame this in a way that makes any sense. I, I, how long have we been doing this? A year and a half, two years. Yeah. It's been a while. Know. It's been a while. Have you ever really heard me at a loss for words? No. Today, that'd be it. That sound you're hearing right now? That's happening. That's my comment. (laughs) 15 seconds of silence. You know, here's the thing, though. Is it really that unbelievable that, that he did a promo from space when at the same time, I mean, these days, Retribution has decided to just take over WWE and they've committed dozens of terroristic acts, but now they've been given a contract by WWE. Listen, don't even, don't, don't, and by the way, what the fuck is a T bar? <laughs> well, I, I, I got a, I went, I, you know, when I got up this morning, started sucking down my coffee, getting ready for, for this show. I look at my social media and it's something named T bar. Yeah. Or someone, I should say, named T-Bar sent me something. And we go, what is a T-Bar? Wait, well, you know, he's firing off pretty big on social. So if you're going to run your mouth here, you're going to get some shrapnel. He will fire back on social media. Who gives a fuck? What has he been in the business for a minute and a half? His his coffee's still hot. Come on, give me a break. I think you know that. By the way, if we're going to talk about it, T-Bar... If we're going to talk about it, look, I, 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 I feel for you. I feel for you. You're new in the business. You're greener than goose shit. You've really not accomplished anything yet. I know you will. I believe you have potential. And I'm not blaming you for the retribution story. I'm not, bra- I'm not blaming the writing team. I'm certainly not bra- blaming one of my best friends, Bruce Pritchard. But this is a fucked up story. <laughs> it's like... Could you possibly screw up an invasion storyline anymore in such a short period of time? And I, you can't blame the talent. They're doing the best yeah. they can. And this is a big opportunity for you, T-Bone or <laughs> T-Bar or T-Rex or whoever you are. I get it. I, you're just like me in 1989 looking at these women with 18-ounce boxing gloves embarrassing themselves. I get it. It's, it's not your fault. So I'm not 
criticizing you, but come on. It is what it is. I, I, I'm always going to support WWE. I, I'll say it a million more times before I'm done doing this podcast. I love Bruce Pritchard. I have nothing but respect for so many people there. But you got to call it what it, 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 it's the shits or it's not. Right now, now hopefully it'll turn around. I talked about this on After 83 Weeks last week. You know, maybe they're going to kind of back, you know, instead of sitting down and going, okay, we're going to do this invasion storyline. There needs to be a premise. What's the premise? Hmm. Let's find one that actually makes sense. It is a little bit logical that we can build upon. Let's start our story. Let's have an act one. That's what that's called. Act one. The first introduction, let's have an inciting incident. Let's have something that helps define why this is about to happen. Even if you just have it in your head so you can build upon it going forward, it doesn't have to be necessarily real obvious to the audience, but you have to know why you're starting something and maybe you don't know how you're going to end it yet. I'm okay with that. You don't have to know the the end of the third act. That's okay. I get that because sometimes stories evolve and opportunities present themselves and things like that. And you've got to be fluid and kind of go with the flow and, and the audience and the interest. But if you start out a storyline and you have no idea why you're starting out with the storyline, you have no idea why or, or the audience can begin to understand why this is happening. What's the motivation? And then you start backfilling it. By the time you get to act two, it's sim- I've been talking about, and I'm not just picking on this particular storyline. WWE does a lot of great stuff. I mean, they did, they're they're in, in a universe unto themselves in so many ways, but nobody's perfect. And this storyline, T-Bone, is just something you're a part of that, you know, it's not your fault. I get it. Be careful about lashing out on, on social media, you know, quite yet. Um, now, if this thing gets some traction and ends up being something that everybody's excited about, I will be the first to apologize for my premature judgment of the storyline, recognize that, yeah, I've been around for a minute or two, and I've made my own fair share of dumb mistakes and all of the above, and I will apologize, but I ain't worried about it. Let's, uh, let's talk about this King of the Hill match. Uh, you can only win by throwing your opponent over the top rope onto the arena floor. And, um, there's some pretty weird cutaways here to banquet halls with people at tables and applauding and yeah, either way we've, uh, we've got the terminator in action. Next we've got Sergeant slaughter facing the terminator. No, not the one from the movie. This is a hairy guy instead. And Ralph says slaughter moves like a tank deliberate and ready to pounce, which is <laughs> kind for saying slow. And they do a weird spot where both of the guys are working with the crowd and the Terminator is telling black curtains, a non-existent crowd to shut up and slaughter is waving to the black curtains. Uh, this is weird. Um, of course we do get Sarge coming off the ropes with a flying body press for a two count punch the button, Greg. Get a little replay of that. And then another request to punch the button after it's done. Cobra clutch gets it done for slaughter. 
And then you're back ringside interviewing Sarge. He's out of breath and saying he's in the best shape of his life. And then we check back one last time for satellite base. And we hear that we'll get more rock and roll and more Beverly Hills knockouts and more AWA wrestling next week. And we're calling it the new AWA once more. And then, um, like the end of an episode of law and order in giant, bold white text, we see AWA executive producer, Vern Gagne. What do you think? Watch this one back for the first time overall. I mean, it is a fun visit. I encourage everybody to do it. It's only like 40 minutes. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. What'd you think? Thumbs up for effort. I can't, I was going to say thumbs down for execution, but I can't even fairly say that again under the circumstances, I'd give it a thumbs in the middle for execution, keeping it in context. This pilot ne- never aired on TV until we get it on the network. This rebranding of the new AWA never takes off, but the team challenge series did play out on AWA TV. Some of the matches were in empty arenas, well, rooms similar to what we saw here, both with a pink background announcers even claimed it was being held there as part of an effort to stop wrestlers from interfering. Not only that, but the series would take an even more bizarre twist as we begin to see gimmick matches that, well, you probably didn't like, like how about a hands tied behind your back match or a meat grinder match or a beauty in the beast match or a knockdown match or a Greco Roman rules match or the great Turkey hunt, which is oh literally God. a Turkey on a fucking pole. Isn't it with Jake, the milkman Milliman? Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, Look at the memory on Jake you. Milliman was the best. He was the best. The only other, the only other enhancement talent that I found more entertaining than Jake, the milkman Milliman was scrap iron George Gadaski. I just like scrap iron. Everybody loves scrap. He lost every. I think, he, I think I actually was there the night he actually won a match. And it was like the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> scrap iron George Gadaski. It was great. I mean, what did you think of the turkey on a pole match? So now you know why I was scarred, even at this early stage of my career, I was scarred permanently by these dumbass gimmick matches. And even I, as green as I was at the time, I was greener than goose shit. Even I knew that those gimmick matches were nothing more than a representation of the fact that there was no storyline. Don't have a storyline. Let's create a gimmick match. It's easy. Doesn't take any thought. We could put a turkey on a fucking stick and hang it over a ring. Yay! That's a good idea. And while we now see a myriad of versions of that, every year we see all kinds of gimmick matches. Every time I see one, and maybe this is this this is just emotional scar tissue. The indelible impression that these silly ass matches left on me, and even at the earliest stage, the formation of my opinion of what constitutes good wrestling versus bad wrestling, at the core of it all is this 
period of time that I was exposed to these ridiculous matches, which even at that point in my career, I knew represented the fact that nobody had a fucking good idea. So let's just do a gimmick match. I hated him then. I still hate him. Unless there's a reason. If you don't give me a reason, what you're really telling me is you just don't have any creative. You don't have a story. You haven't spent any time, really time, investing in the basic fundamental structure of a good story, which isn't that hard, by the way, you just have to do it instead of just throwing matches together, throwing shit up against the wall. Oh, we need a match. We need a main event. Oh, let's put this guy over here and we'll get that guy over there. Oh, main event. Where's the story? Well, oh, there's no story, but there's, oh, there's no story. I know we'll put a Turkey on a stick. <laughs> just, I don't know. It'll never leave me. I'm, it's, it's, it, my disdain for senseless, lazy gimmick matches as a way of camouflaging the fact that nobody's come up with a great story is something that I will go to my grave with. Well, thankfully you don't have to take this to the grave with you wondering what happened with this series. It would continue. They're even going to run some matches at the Mayo civic center in Rochester, Minnesota. Some of those even featured commentary from a young Eric Bischoff and Lee Marshall. Sergeant Slaughter would face Tom Burton. And during the match, the commentators would harp on the fact that Sergeant Slaughter had been down on his luck lately and had put over the heel champions Abisko by defeating uh, Sarge in clean title defenses in Hawaii and Guam, which clearly didn't happen, but it's a nice way to bury him on the way out because Slaughter's going to jump to the WWF laying the groundwork for his eventual heel turn to become that Iraqi sympathizer. Always in kayfabe, of course, the AWA would announce that Slaughter had gone AWOL and Colonel De Beers has now been voted in to be the new captain of the snipers. But De Beers' first order is going to be to change the team name. It's De Beers Diamond Cutters. Do you remember Slaughter leaving and, and what that relationship was like with him and Vern? Did Vern understand or was Vern taking it very personal here? Vern always took it personally. I think, you know, the, the answer is both. I think deep down inside Vern understood, um, he, he, Vern was having a hard time paying people even in 1989, you know, uh, uh, probably six or eight months after this all went down, I was working full time and not getting paychecks. And, you know, I was young enough and I guess I'll give myself a little bit of credit loyal enough but in many ways, dumb enough to continue working for no pay. I guess in retrospect, it wasn't dumb because if I had not stuck around, I probably wouldn't have gotten an opportunity to end up in WCW and eventually WWE and all the other stuff that I was able to do. It works so out. I, I don't, I don't, I don't regret it, but a lot of guys couldn't do that. A lot of guys couldn't afford not to make money and, and slaughter was one of them. So Vern, while I think deep down inside, um, knew it understood it, it still hurt, you know, because he was a competitor because he was a fighter and he didn't want to lose, but I think he got it. The series comes to a conclusion in August of 1990 with the million dollar battle Royal. Thanks to the points being so close, the battle Royal is going to decide the entire competition and it's won by Larry's legends and the longtime enhancement talent, your favorite Jake, the milkman Milliman. And, uh, he looks like, uh, um, uh, uh, Otis of the era with a haircut. I was from just going to say, who does he, he reminds me of somebody now. Who is it? And you're right. He's like a little mini Otis. 
It wasn't the, as big as Otis. Otis is a shit, man. I love Otis. Great character. I like my character. He and super guy too. And oh, by the way, yeah, super dangerous shooter if need be, but he's such a good dude. I, I wish I would have gotten a chance to work with Otis a little bit more, or even if I didn't get a chance to work with him, just to hang around with him a little bit. Good, good dude. Really good dude. But yeah, Jake, Jake, the milkman Millman was like a little Otis set. In the months that followed the AWA's uh, impending doom would come to realization. Zabisco is going to jump ship to the WCW organization while he's still AWA champ. He's going to be stripped of the belt and he would be the last champion as the company went bankrupt before a new champion could be crowned in 91. Slaughter had already gone to the WWF. He's now an anti-American heel is going to win the world title at the Royal rumble. And most of the talent goes on to be well, a part of one of the two bigger organizations in the U S some go to Japan, some go to the Indies and others just retire. But this was sort of the last stab at, Hey, let's try something big. Let's try something different. Maybe we can turn this thing around. This is going to be the new AWA and well, the team challenge series just wasn't the magic bullet they hoped for. Knowing what we know now about the pandemic era, it was kind of ahead of its time. In many ways it was. And, and again, I, I, I know I, be, I beat this drum, you know, for the last two hours. Um, but again, if, if you were producing the show, if you were there in this moment and you had very little money, but yet you were willing to try something so radically different and make the chicken salad that they attempted to make out of the chicken shit that they were forced to work with. You got to give a lot of credit to Vern for trying, you know, to Mike Shields for being as innovative as he was. And I know when people go back and look at this and go, how could you, Matt, how could you suggest that this was innovative? Well, you know, go back and look at any technology, go back and look at the, you know, the, the mobile phones we used to use back in the eighties, go back and, you know, realize that in 1970, there were no mobile phones and you had these big ass clunky things. The only way you could, you know, use them is if they were hooked to your wall. I mean, things changed, but if you went back in 1989 and you, and you were faced with this challenge of trying to produce a show and trying to, to take one last big swing at the plate, knowing it was your last pitch, and to have the balls to 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 attempt something like this is cornball and as horrific as this was in many ways as a production, nothing but respect for Mike Shields, for Vern Gagne, and for everybody else that was a part of at least trying. Let's jump to uh, some questions. Let's punch the button, Greg. <laughs> uh, Instagram a wrestling historian wants to know, when did you see the writing on the wall for the AWA and what mistakes from Vern did you learn and then not repeat in WCW? Well, I mean, the handwriting was on the wall prior to this particular event. As I've said, you know, we were, a lot of us were going without paychecks, not, not consistently. That didn't happen until a little bit later, but you know, what we all knew of the financial stress that Vern was under because, you know, the eminent domain lawsuit was, pu you know, was public information. And, and, you know, I certainly in conversations with Vern by this point in time, you know, Vern and I had, and, and Greg had been on hunting trips together and things like that. So, you know, I, I had a pretty good perspective of where Vern was at financially, even at this time. And the handwriting was on the wall to a large degree. Um, as far as mistakes, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, 
am so grateful for and learn so much about the fundamentals of the just the fundamentals of the wrestling business from Vern that I don't look back at any of the mistakes that he made um, or was, you know, the mistakes that Vern made were primarily due to the due to the fact that he was so fucking stubborn. You know, he, he was holding on so tight to a formula that had worked 10 years previously and he put his head in the sand in terms of the direction that television was going. I guess I still hold some of that, you know, because it was my experience. It's I, I saw it. I went through it. Um, and, and, and some of what I've learned has been, you know, in hindsight, you know, uh, at the time when I was working with Vern and Greg, I, I didn't look at them as stubborn. I, I was, they were, they were friends to a degree, to a large degree, you know, Vern was the shit to me. He was the, he was, he was Vern Ganya, and I believed in what he believed in. Because I didn't know any better, but in retrospect now, you know, much of the, the pain and suffering that Vern and the AWA experienced was a result of his stubbornness. So I guess if I walked away with anything, it was probably keep an open mind, keep your eye on where the business is going, not where it's been, you know, uh, was it Wayne Gretzky, you know, says something to the effect of, you know, play where the puck is going, not where it's, where it's been same thing. You know, you've got to constantly keep your eye in the future and not keep, you know, relying on formulas or, or positions that may have been successful in the past because shit changes, shit changes, man. I, it's funny you say that. I just thought about this the other day and this is completely off topic, but wrestling historian will probably dig it because he's that kind of guy. And by the way, thanks for all the stuff you sent me, man. I, I always find it interesting, but when Harvey Schiller first came in and took over for Bill Watts, and this was in the midst of the merger and all this shit was going on, and I could see what was happening. And again, never been, never experienced a corporate you know merger before. There's a lot of things I had never experienced before. But even having never experienced it, I didn't study business in college. I didn't have an MBA, none of that shit. But you didn't have to, to see what was happening within Turner at that time. All you had to do is just be conscious. And I remember Harvey had this one team meeting for all of the department heads that reported to Harvey. And I was one of them. And this included, you know, all of Turner sports and the Goodwill games and all that kind of shit. We had this one big team meeting with all the department heads. And Harvey said, what do you think is the one characteristic that is the most important characteristic for a leader in Turner Broadcasting. And I was the first one to raise my hand. I said, the ability to adapt. And Harvey looked at me and was like, no, you know, and it really, you know, publicly dismissed me, you know, with a pretty stiff shot. And I don't remember what the, whoever it was, you know, that came up with the, the answer that Harvey wanted. And in retrospect, Harvey, I was right. And I think part of that was because of the experience that I saw Vern go through. He didn't have the ability to adapt. His own ego and his stubbornness got in his way. And he was hanging on too hard for too long to formulas that he knew were successful for him. They were. 
He made millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. But times, times moved on and he didn't. So that maybe is the one thing that I learned. Carl 78 had a good question. If Vern put you in charge of the AWA, what move, what moves would you have made differently? Now, let me be clear. I don't want to ask you through the lens of 1989, Eric Bischoff. Let's fast forward. What would 1996 Eric Bischoff have done here with the AWA in 89? Wow. I, I can't even imagine answer. I really, I'd have to spend a week thinking about that. Uh, I mean, because first of all, again, you know, 1996 Eric Bischoff in 1989 would have had maybe some great ideas or some bad ideas, uh, probably more bad than good, but wouldn't have had the money to execute any of them. Right. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't, I, I don't even know how to answer that. I, it's a good question, but I'd have to think about that one for a day or two. Um, KMA Jackson wants to know, Eric, do you know why there isn't more AWA content available on the WWE network? Um, I, I, no, I mean, I don't program the network. I, I, I can only imagine because it's of such limited interest to such a small part of the audience, um, uh, or the network. It, 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 there's nothing there that's really exciting other than maybe looking back at the careers of some of the stars like Jerry Lynn, for example. Um, I don't mean to put myself in a star category, but you know, young talent that was just literally cutting their teeth who went on to become in one way, shape or form more significant in the future. Um, I find that fascinating as I discussed a little while ago, but, um, it's just not that great a content. You know, there's nothing historical about it other than where were they, where were they then and where did they end up? That's interesting. But beyond that, there's really nothing that interesting about it. You know, young Scott Hall, go back and watch some of the early Scott Hall matches, especially with Kurt Hennig. Those are phenomenal matches. I mean, I was a huge fan of Scott Hall back in, before I even started going to work for Vern back in 86 at Wrestle Rock. I loved it. Um, but yeah, seeing, you know, Kurt Henning and Scott Hall and some others that went on to become big names and big stars, that's really interesting. But if you're not interested in that, there's really nothing about AWA that will make you want to tune in. One last one, then we'll wrap things up. High Boxing IQ wants to know, do you have any good Johnny V stories? No, I never, I never liked being around him. So I, I avoided him. You didn't like just, being around him? No, just what, didn't. What's up with that? You know, some people like asparagus and some people don't. Okay. I felt the same way about Johnny V. Well, I know I, uh, enjoyed today's episode. I enjoy taking a, a sort of a one-off look at these different, uh, territories and things that you've experienced over the years, but what a great concept this was, especially with what we know that's going on now. We've got a really fun October planned. I know we always get the question, are you guys going to cover Halloween havoc? Yes. October 26th, we're going to bring you Halloween Havoc 92. The week prior on the 19th, it's going to be Halloween Havoc 1992. And then on the 12th, the week prior to that, we're covering TNA Bound for Glory 2010. This was a big show. But next week, we're going to do something different. It's going to be the one-year anniversary of SmackDown on Fox. That went down on October 4th. 2019 we're going to cover it next week october 5th now of course you'll get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com 
But before we talk about ad free, I do want to mention this is a landmark, very historical moment in wrestling history for wrestling to be not only in prime time, but not on cable on broadcast network television. And you were there, Eric, I'm looking forward to talking about that very important milestone and day next week. What do you think we'll talk about next week? Well, you're hosting a show, which means I have no clue what you're going to throw at me. And that's the way I like it. Um, I love improv with you. I, I, look, there is a lot to talk about with this show. It was a magic, it was a magic moment. It was a important moment in history, as you pointed out. Uh, and just the energy, the anticipation, you know, leading up to the event itself, leading up to the premiere, you know, the energy at the premiere was something that I had never experienced before in my life. I'm very, very grateful for it. I know things didn't work out with me in WWE in the long term, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the way I feel about the opportunity that I had to be a part of that moment. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it. By the way, we should mention adfreeshows.com. Lord, we're having a lot of fun over there. You just did a locked and loaded. They played Bischoff bingo, man. We continue to sort of cultivate this, uh, community. I think is probably the right word, but I'm having a lot of fun and you've got a peek at what we've got in store for our new fall schedule that we're going to start dripping out. Stay tuned next week. We'll have a big announcement about, uh, well, something kind of fun that we're going to bring back an old WCW gimmick and make it interactive. It's all happening at adfreeshows.com. We're doing a lot of cool stuff, but Eric, the future looks bright over at adfreeshows.com. Does it not? It does. And you know why it does? Because it's so much fun. I mean, what, uh, and I'm, I know I sound like I'm shilling here and I, I guess I am, so I'm not going to apologize for it, but we do these promotions where, you know, you or I, and, and maybe some other guys are doing it too, but you or I, you know, call fans who are, are, are family members now who are, you know, signing up for adfreeshows.com and we get a chance to chat with them. I, you know how I am. People that listen to me on this show know how I am. I talk a lot. You know, I was on a, I made one of those calls the other day and I was on the phone for 48 minutes. Wow. I mean, I have, I, there are some really, really great people. And I'm, what's really fun for great people, interesting people that I've met now, some people that I'm probably going to end up, you know, becoming friends with long-term as a result of it. Um, but what the thing that I dig the most that almost brings a tear to my eye is when you see some of our, our family over at adfreeshows.com start to interact with each other. They didn't know each other before adfreeshows.com and they're becoming friends yep. and they're talking about wrestling. And I see them, you know, on social media reacting to each other. And, you know, it's just, we often hear the term, you know, community, you know, or, or but man, it's really true at yeah. freeshows.com. The number of people that are making connections because they all have, you know, at least in the beginning, they have something in common. It's really, it, it goes beyond rewarding for me. It's, it's real. I, I, I really dig it. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy making those calls. Um, I enjoy interacting with people on zoom. We have so much fun, you know, the locked and loaded thing. I spend more time laughing my ass off than I do talking. And, and it's because of the input and the reactions from everybody else. So it can't say enough good things about it. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of it. Let's put it that way. Check it out. If you haven't already, it's adfreeshows.com. 
we greatly appreciate all your support. It means a lot to me and my family. And of course, Eric and his family. And we're out of time this week, boys and girls, send your hate tweets, especially UT bar. I know you're listening, big fan of the show. So send Eric his receipts right now. Uh, it's at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, yeah, hey come on, T-Bone, T-Bar, T-Rex, whoever you are fire away. Lord, this is going to be fun. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, you love the show, right? We'll show off that love with a shirt from ericbischoff.com or get your gimmick at boxagimmicks.com, the official store of 83 weeks. Posters, hats, tumblers, accessories, and more. Boxagimmicks.com. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, Patrick, if you don't mind, would it be okay if I recorded this conversation? Yeah, no problem. Awesome. I'd love to be able to use our conversation for all of Conrad's podcasts. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Awesome. Okay, so what made you come to Save With Conrad in the first place? The time just seemed right. Me and my wife just had a baby and we were looking to trim some costs and it seemed like a good time to pull the trigger and see the very least, you know, what we could get from from Conrad to better our you know, monthly rate and just to save a little bit of money. Was there something specific that he said that really made you want to take that step? Every time on the podcast ads when he said, hey, skip your next two house payments, I'm going, well, that just sounds perfect. I can build up the two months. That that always seemed appealing, and this time it had me sold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to turn away the chance at saving money. Now, at, through the whole process and everything that you just shared with me, um, was there anything that we could improve, maybe um, do better in the future? I'm, I'll be honest with you, like, just in terms of anything I could, you know, say improve, I mean, that one I can't really think of because all the things that I just said were positive, that's the thing that a lot of other companies don't necessarily always have. Um, how much money was Save With Conrad able to save you guys? At the very least, um, it dropped my rate by an entire point, uh, percentage point, and we save about, you know, a little over a hundred dollars or so a month it's not just right at if you could tell any of our listeners anything about say with conrad or encourage them what would you tell them i would say um take advantage of the ad it you know everything that is said that you hear on those ads is true so what are you waiting for find out how much money you can save right now for free 
You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.